We are back. And in this hour, we're talking about education and what some would call the education crisis that this country faces, particularly when you think about uh, black and brown students. Uh, we got this report out that math scores for all 15-year-old uh, students across the U.S. have fallen. Uh, and lots of folks have uh, different reasons for why that is. Uh, but I wanted to talk with our guest today, his name is Daryl Williams. He is an educator, speaker, and author of a book called 99% Human, 1% Amazing. Uh, he's a teacher inside a classroom. So I wanted to get his take on what he thinks is the, the solution forward when we think about uh, education and particularly how we are going to educate the next generation of Black and Brown leaders in this country. So thank you, Daryl, so much for joining me for this discussion. Thank you for the work that you do. Congratulations on your new book, 99% Human, 1% Amazing. So I, I just want to start by asking you, what inspired you? Because usually when you talk to a teacher, there's usually a story uh, about, you know, when they first got the calling or when they first knew that they wanted to become an educator. So what is your backstory? Yeah, my backstory is actually actually the opposite of what most people would say. Because when I speak to other teachers about, or when I speak to teachers about why they came into the classroom, oftentimes they can recall a specific individual that kind of changed their lives, a specific teacher that changed their lives and say, you know, when I was in sixth grade, I was on the wrong path. And then this right. came in my life, you know, and, and, and turned it around. And for me, it's actually the exact opposite. I went under the radar for the majority of my K-12 career, and I just felt like I wasn't seen, I wasn't heard, I wasn't valued. You know, I was the type of person that my grades were good enough, my behavior was fine, <laughs> I wasn't a loud, outspoken type of person. So I flew under the radar, and I just felt that that nobody kind of noticed me, right? Wow. And Were you in a public or private school? And tell us where. I was in a public school in Staten Island, New York. It was a magnet school, though. So it was broken up based off of academic performance. So it was a, a Title I school, which is majority minority, you know, low income type situation. But I always had good grades. So when I was in the honors classes, I was the only black student in that class. And I didn't have any black educators, male or female, in, those pub in that public school. So when I looked at, you know, what was going on around me, I just kind of felt like I was lost in the shuffle. So to answer your question, the reason why I became a teacher was because I always said that I wanted to be the teacher that I never had. I wanted everybody to know. I wanted everybody to have somebody in the building that knew, that they knew that cared for them, that loved them, and that fully supported them. So that's why I became a teacher. Wow. Well, that's a, that's a, a as you say, very different story because typically it is yeah. someone being inspired by someone. You kind of had that opposite experience. And, and did you have that experience because you're you know, now what you know as a professional is that most teachers are too busy giving attention to the quote unquote troublemaker or the quote unquote, you know, kid that seems to be struggling with the uh, academics in the classroom. Like where is the typical teacher's attention focused? I mean, you, you nailed it because those behaviors that you just named, we label them as attention seeking behaviors. So since they're exhibiting attention seeking behaviors, they receive the attention. And that's where a lot of the teachers' education, that their, their focus goes, their attention goes. And then some other students, those are the ones that, you know, those are the ones that are kind of falling through the cracks, whether it's because they're not as loud as vocal. And that's kind of where I was. And that's actually one of the things that I like to address in the book, 99% Human, 1% Amazing, like how to make sure that we fully support all students and how to mitigate, you know, behaviors so that we're not just spending our whole day focusing 
on student misbehaviors, but truly focusing on academic growth. You know, it's so funny because it's a term we hear, you know, using education called social promotion. My father was a teacher. You know, I have lots of uh, friends who have been educators. You know, maybe some of them are administrators now, but, you know, they've been educators. And, and I'll never forget a story. One of my nieces told she was that kid who was so quiet and so, quote unquote, well behaved in the classroom that she was promoted, like jumped a grade. But academically, she was really struggling. But because she didn't give the teacher any, you know, issues, she didn't have any behavior issues, she then got out of high school, graduated, realized how deficient her, you know, academic skills were and was really upset and was angry and, and was mad. Like, why did they promote, why did they, you know, call me gifted and, you know, jump a grade and, and treat me like I was this high performing academic student when really it was just that she was quiet and she was socially promoted. And so, I mean, it, obviously that happened in that school, but how common is that? I don't, I can't, obviously I don't have the data on that, but I, I definitely know from a teacher perspective, and actually right now I'm an assistant principal. I transitioned about three, four years ago. So um, from teaching into instructional coaching, and I'm currently an assistant principal, but I definitely see when teachers look at a student and they associate the behavior to the academic performance. So a student that is typically off task is because they're lost. It's because they don't understand what's going on. They're deficient some way and academically. And then a student who was quiet, who was quiet and kind and nice and compliant, it's like, okay, they get it, right? But that's not necessarily the case. Uh, again, which is why in the book, we talk about more, you know, how do you check for understanding and understand that students are getting it so that we're not socially promoting students, rather we're promoting them based off of what they prove to us that they can do. What, what percentage, Daryl, of teachers are black and then break that down to black males in this country? Yeah, we are. I know the percentage of black males is 2%. I know well, it was less than 2%. I think it's about 1.78 or something of that nature. Um, I'm not sure exactly this percentage of black females, but just for black males to be under 2%, you know, is alarming out of everybody across the nation. And it's a number that's been consistent for, for years now. It's not like it's grown to, you know, it's growing. It's, it's kind of remaining stagnant. So, so tell us your what you believe to be the reasons for that. Why are so few teachers? And you know, we're gonna sit here and go, I'm gonna find out with Google how many, you know, what the percentage of black teachers overall is. But yeah, why so few black male teachers? That's a tough one because I can only speak from my perspective. And for me, again, being in the service industry, being able to to help students, that was always clear to me. I would say, similar to what you mentioned in the introduction, there's so many different reasons why people are struggling with teaching, so many different reasons why people are leaving the profession. And I would attribute those same reasons to the reasons why Black males or, or people of color are not entering into the education space. So mm -hmm. from the unrealistic expectations met with the, the long work hours, the low compensation, met with student disrespect, um, not no support from parents. I think all of those, when people see it, what it takes in order to be an effective teacher and what it takes to actually change lives. Like I can, I can do something else and make more money. So I really think that that has a lot to do, not necessarily just with black males, but just with a lot of people who choose against education. Mm -hmm. 
So this this report uh, that I'm looking at says that about nine percent of teachers are Hispanic, non-black, okay. and about seven percent are considered black. Uh, and you know, th- wow. this isn't accurate, you know, hundred percent accurate because folks have to identify right in order to be right, counted right. Uh, as a certain race. But I, I, this gives us some sense that. Uh, the percentage of black teachers in this country is, is small. And as you said, the black male population is even smaller. So that means yeah. that, and even I'm surprised that the Hispanic number is as low as it is. So that says in most schools, including, you know, quote unquote, urban schools, most of the teachers are white. Absolutely. And even if you break it down even further, most of them are white women specifically. Wow. Okay. So w- when you think about, uh, you know, some of the issues that have come up, particularly around teaching Black history and, uh, you know, banning books in places like Florida. What what has that been like, you know, for not just Black teachers, but just kind of what you've observed in general? How has that made even teaching more difficult? Yeah, so I'm in, I'm in North Carolina, and I don't have too much familiarity with you know, the state of Florida and, and their jurisdiction. But when, when I look at, when you take some things away, then it gets really hard to educate the whole entire child. One of the things that I'm really big on is the social and emotional learning piece of it. And where it comes from is the research by William Sadlasek, which helps us to understand that it's not SAT scores, it's not ACT scores that help determine whether or not somebody is gonna be successful in their post-collegiate career, whatever it is that they decide to do. But there's mindset shifts and character developments and, and transferable skills that students need to build in that K-12 experience in order to then be successful beyond, you know, the 12th grade. And that's really where my work lies. That's really what I focus in on, trying to help students understand what skills to build now so they have choices later. That's 100% what I'm all about. So when we start to take some things away, we may say, man, we just need to focus um, straight on curriculum. We need to make sure they get this math, this science, this reading, you know, and we feel like we just have to push, push, push the curriculum. But I really want to step back and answer the question, do students even have a belief that they can learn these things? Like, do they even have a mindset that says, I can acquire new information? Do they mm-hmm. think and believe in themselves enough to say, I'm strong enough and I'm smart enough to start with something I know nothing about and struggle with it until I figure it out? And the question really needs to be, how much time do we spend building those skills and not just teaching from a textbook? Well, we can imagine that students, depending on, you know, the backgrounds that they're coming from. And I was just having this conversation with a friend. Her son is at a public school and she's having some issues with bullying. And the the principal is like, look, you know, this is a public school. Some of these kids go home and they sleep in cars. Some of these kids, you know, are in foster care and they have foster parents and they're moved around. So, you know, when you think about what a school looks like, it's a microcosm of the world, right? So people are showing up. Some kids haven't had food to eat. Some haven't seen their parents. Some haven't been to a doctor ever. They haven't been to a dentist ever. So they're bringing all that into a classroom. And then we're asking, you know, an individual teacher that is underpaid, disrespected, you know, to uh, turn out these little geniuses. So, uh, you know, it, it's not an easy task. I do want to go back to this stat, so because I, I did look this up. So it says in the U.S., Black male teachers, you're right, made up only 1.3% of all teachers in K-12. through That's the 2021 school year. So that's even less than your 2%. And it says that makes them, Black males, the second least represented demographic in teaching. Asian men represent 05 
percent of all teachers. And as you correctly stated, the teaching workforce overall remains predominantly white female. Uh, and they said in comparison, white female and male teachers combined make up more than 80%, 80% of all educators in the 2021 school year. Uh, and this goes on, and I don't know if this is your experience, it says that Black male teachers tend to be concentrated in areas with a high Black population. Uh, is that what you've seen? Because I know you said you went to a school in Staten Island where you didn't have a, any Black male teachers. You're in North Carolina now. Does that yeah. seem to be the case that the most of the Black men teachers you know are in schools where there are heavy Black populations? Yeah, I will say that. And I think it's, but I think it's more of a choice thing. I think there's two phases to it. One, uh, when you think about a metropolitan city, they're going to have a higher, you know, concentration of black males. So that's probably where they are as well. But also teachers that have choice, as in just like I did, I chose to work in those communities. When I came out of college, I joined the program Teach for America. And their whole goal is to put people in places where nobody else wants to go. So right. I started teaching in um, Cleveland, Mississippi. And then and then I transitioned to Huntsville, Alabama before coming to Charlotte, North Carolina. But my whole goal was to go where nobody else would go and to try to make an impact with students and children that look like me. So, yeah, a lot of us, a lot of black male educators are choosing to be in a place where we can be that role model for students. I had my first black male educator in Charlotte, North Carolina in 12th grade, and he was teaching African-American studies. So my first black male educator in a public school was in 12th grade, African-American studies. If I never took that class, what would it look like? Yeah. And so, again, I want to make sure we're, we're accurate about these numbers. Six percent of all teachers are black in this school year and two three quarters of those six percent are black women. Uh, so black men, not surprisingly, <laughs> you know, make up yes. a very small portion uh, of that six percent, uh, you know, that. Not surprisingly, I, I can think of, you know, all kinds of reasons why you talked about the pay. So if you're a black male, you've got a family, you got kids, uh, you know, many find that just can't even support a family on, you know, what schools, some schools pay. But let's talk about it. I do want to talk about the difference you think it makes for, you know, what you experienced having that black male teacher in the 12th grade, being a black male that was in a classroom, seeing other black male Teachers, what are you seeing as the impact? Like some students, some black students are going to go all their lives without yeah. ever having a black male teacher just because the numbers are so small. And, mm -hmm. you know, I'd venture to say they're mostly concentrated in predominantly black cities. So if you live in a city where you don't have a black, large black population, uh, you may not ever have a black male teacher. So when we come forward, I want to talk about the, the impact you think and why it's so important that we try to encourage more Black men to go into education. Uh, stay with us. KBLA Talk 1580. There's no time like the present. Let's get back to more of Ariva Martin in real time on KBLA Talk 1580. We are back and in this hour. I'm talking with Daryl Williams. He's an educator, a speaker, an author. He has a new book out. It's called 99% Human, 1% Amazing. And we're talking about Black male teachers, the relatively small number of Black men who are teaching in classrooms across this country. Uh, Daryl, we, we now, we know the numbers. 
yeah. I want to talk about this education gap. We hear a lot about it. Uh, today, this report came out that Americans in general, American students, 15-year-olds, had a 13% decrease in math scores, a percentage point plunge in math. And this is for American 15, year old, 15 years old. And this was an exam called the Program for International Student Assessment. Uh, what are you seeing in terms of just that <clears throat> gap, the gap that we know has been persistent between white student achievement and black student achievement? Is it getting better? Or yeah, this is doesn't speak well to you know students across the board for uh, American students, but I really want to focus in on that that black white education gap. Yeah, so I think the pandemic did a lot of work on widening that gap, and the the reason why is because if you think about the pandemic a couple of years ago and what it looked like for different socioeconomic status students, mm -hmm. it was widely different. So when schools shut down, students and families that were able to afford private tutoring and able to afford, um, you know, better options for resources and things like that, they purchased them. And their students were on Zoom or whatever it was with a private tutoring continuing to progress, whereas students that did not have that financial capital, they were forced to try to make things work. And they may not have even been able to log on to their Zoom classes, even though the Zoom classes were tough and some may say ineffective in some of those instant situations you might have 45 50 students in a zoom you don't know if they're paying attention or not but there were some students who did not even have the connectivity like the wi-fi from where they were to try to get onto a zoom class so they were just struggling trying to make ends meet and saying all that to say a, a year a year and a half two years of that you can imagine that 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 gap is going to widen because of the fact that those who are already excelling had now the opportunity to continue to push forward and those who are behind and now being pushed further behind. So based off of that, I don't know what the most recent data says, but uh, based off of that, the gap did did widen. And now the work is trying to continue to close it again. Yeah, you know, when I think about the gap too, Daryl, let's focus in on black boys, because what we see, particularly across college campuses, when, you know, you get to college, the you know so in some of these college campuses it's like three to one four to one in terms yeah. of black young men entering college versus black young women and I've done shows you know relationship shows I had a couple of uh, psychologists on a couple of weeks ago we were talking about you know some of the relationship issues that black women and men have and a lot of it has to do with this lopsided you know equation when it comes to so many more black women are going to be college graduates you know, have good paying jobs, be homeowners, et cetera. And then yeah. you had this achievement gap that we talked about starts in elementary school, high school, and persists all the way through college and how that then impacts relationships, you know, uh, marriage, yeah. families, women having, I mean, so it just, it doesn't just stop at the school house steps. It has this, you know, ripple effect throughout, uh, yeah. you know, our society and particularly black culture. My daughters are on a college camp, two daughters at Columbia now. And sometimes they send me these photographs and I'm like, oh my God, where are the men? It's going to be like 40, 50 beautiful black women. I mean, gorgeous, yeah. drop dead. And it'll be like four little heads, you know, four little guys that are peeking, you know, out in this picture. And, you know, that is not unusual. I talked to other, you know, parents who have kids on co college campuses, and that is 
that's the reality. How do we address that? That's scary for us, you know, parents of women who want their young black, you know, daughters to meet black men on these campuses. It is. And, and it wasn't much different when I was in college about 15 years ago now. I also went to an HBCU, um, Oakwood University. And um, I do have a daughter as well. She's four. So obviously I wanted her at some point <laughs> go to college and start a career and find a man. But I think as you were speaking, I was hearing, <laughs> I think that there's a such thing as school hurt. I know that some people, sometimes they mention church hurt. Like they go and they see that the people in church are hypocrites. So they stop going to church. And I'm thinking that because of what's happening in K-12 education with our Black males and the way that they are viewed, treated, not supported, there could be a subliminal school hurt where now mm. I'm finished, you know, I'm 18 years old and you're asking me to go to college for another four years, another four years of torture. Like <laughs> for the last 12 years, all they ever wanted to do was put me out. All right. So no, I'm just going to go start working. I'm just going to go make money. I'm just going to go do this because I don't want to deal with the, the school hurt that I had experienced in my K-12 career. Wow, that's that's deep. That's, yeah, obviously, and we know if you lose a student even well before high school, black boys in particular, we know the discrimination, yeah. we know the labeling, we know the, you know, the behaviors that get, you know, blown out of proportion. Oftentimes, we know that many of our black boys are disciplined at higher rates than their counterparts, and that happens to black girls as well. We know many of them are, you know, pushed out into alternative schools, not allowed to even, you know, be on. Uh, you know, campuses with their peers. Are, are you seeing, like, you know, again, you, you're a Black male now in a position to have power over some of these decisions. So yes. like, what do you do to try to nurture and bring up that Black boy who may come from that home where they don't have a lot of support, mm -hmm. uh, you know, may not be getting the kind of structure, like you said, may not have the tutors, may not even have parents who have gone, who finished even high school, you know, how do you get that kid engaged in learning, keep them engaged and, you know, really be there to support them through what can be, as you said, a school hurt experience? You know, I'm one person and I try the best that I can with the lives that I, that I touch and that I interact with on my campus. We have about 800 students, about 620 of them are minority students. So I try to impact them as much as possible. But to your point, as you said, as now an administrator, what things, what systems are we putting in place to to kind of help those students that are historically disadvantaged? And when I think about, if, if I'm thinking about a specific example, it's funny, you asked the question before break, you know, but I was thinking about a specific example of a student um, yesterday that the teacher, he was drawing in his notebook and the teacher asked him to stop drawing because it's time for him to take notes. And then the student huffed and puffed and, and he, he wanted to keep drawing. So the student said, put the notebook on my desk. And the, the student said, put the, it on my desk. I'm sorry. So yes, the teacher said, put the notebook on my desk. The student took the notebook and turned and threw it onto the desk. And then he was a black male, eight, year, eight years old. And teacher told me to get out of class, come to my class, sent him with a referral because he's disrespectful. He's throwing things. And if you look at the way that the referral is written, it seems like a violent offense or it seems like he's attacking. You know what I'm saying? Whereas in, if that was me in my classroom, that's just that's a conversation. But because of this student, and this is, you're going to be mad, but because of this student, <laughs> this was now his sixth referral. And based on the code of conduct, wow. that warranted a suspension. So now he was suspended because he turned and he tossed the book. Oh, Whereas, wait, wait. Yeah, yeah. A one-day suspension. Whereas an eight-year-old. An eight-year-old. But if I would have seen that, 
if it was me in my classroom back when I was in the classroom, it would have been it wouldn't have had to come to all that. It would have been a conversation. And I think that's why the book is again is so important because I'm teaching, I'm just one person. And no matter how much I travel, no matter how much I speak, I'm just one person. And my goal through the book was to help people understand how to see some of these behaviors, how to see some of the things that students are dealing with, and how to help support them through it. And that's what is really going to be helpful because, like you said, there's 2% of us are Black males. Not everybody's going to understand that. Some people are going to see that and see disrespect. But I'm trying to help somebody understand that there are other ways. It's not just suspension. Like, you got to help them through this thing. So again, what you just pointed to, great example, Daryl. I'm glad you brought that up because that's, again, you know, that's the world, right? That's the way people have been socialized to think about Black people in general and Black males in particular. And all of those negative stereotypes, all of those tropes follow that 80% of those white teachers who, you know, we now know 80% of them are white, predominantly white females, that's following them subconsciously or not into the classroom. And that's, you know, the policies that are being set are being set by these people, the 80%. Uh, They're being implemented by these, you know, the 80%. And so if we now have such a polarized society and people have to decide, you know, you're either pro-Trump, anti-Trump, you know, there are not many people in the middle you know, obviously those attitudes are coming into the classroom and how people have seen black males portrayed on television, in the media, you know, in music, et cetera. How, how does a teacher separate all of that and do what you just described? Like, okay, the eight-year-old through the book, you know what, come over here. Let's talk about that. You know, and a teacher may say to his or her defense, I got 40 kids. You know, I've got this pressure to get through this lesson. I don't have time to stop and talk to little Johnny about that book. It's easier to send them out. Doesn't matter if an eight-year-old is sitting at home a day being suspended for something, uh, because we know now he has seven, eight of these offenses. He's probably on a track to not even probably finish that school. Uh, When we come forward, I want to talk about that. How do we separate what we know are some of these racist attitudes that we see displayed in everyday life from that teacher that has to go into that classroom and deal with that little eight-year-old male student. Stay with us, KBLA Talk 1580. We are back, and in this hour, I am talking with Daryl Williams. He's an educator, speaker, and author of a new book, 99% Human, 1% Amazing, Daryl has spent a considerable part of his career as a uh, teacher. Obviously, he's a Black male, so he's one of the less than 2% of Black male teachers in this country. He's now uh, working as an assistant principal in North Carolina. And we're just talking about, you know, the reality that 80% of the public school teachers in this country are white, predominantly white female. We know that pervasive racism is real. We know systemic racism is real. And so how do we expect these teachers to go into schools where they have to teach in urban areas oftentimes or teach Black kids and separate what they've heard and seen and the tropes uh, that you know may have been fed to them about Black men and see those students as you know little kids who are full of potential? Uh, that must be pretty difficult for some teachers, Daryl. But it is. But it is. And that is exactly why the book 99% Human, 1% Amazing <laughs> exists. Because as you mentioned, the statistics, 
I know that over 80% of the people who are teaching are teaching students that don't necessarily look like them. I 100% get that. And earlier, as you were talking, I know that you were alluding to like policies that need to change and things that need to be adjusted. And the way I always ask myself, what is my role in this situation? And I'm a shout out a couple of my friends. I know there's my friend Alfred Brooks. He's running for office down in Atlanta to help with education, a black male educator that wants to be on the policy side of things. Um, Dr. Sean Woodley, they're doing some amazing work, right? And the way I see it, I was like, man, I could do something similar and work on education policy and put these systems in place. And like 12, 13, 14, 15 years down the line, we can see some change. But then I, I was paused and I said, like, there's a lot in education that's not right but it's not going to change overnight. Mm -hmm. And tomorrow, there's going to be an eight-year-old Black boy that is sitting in somebody's classroom that needs somebody like me that's going to care about them. But how can I help that kid? I'm not trying to wait 12, 13, 15 years. How can I help that kid? So the reason why the book came out is because my goal is to get into the hands of as many teachers as possible, white, Black, brown, or other, whoever it is, to help give them strategies. So to do what exactly what you're saying, how do we see kids for their potential and not for their skin color? How can we see them for the greatest that they can actually be? So my goal is actually to be an advocate for the students that look like me in the spaces of people who don't necessarily look like us. So a lot of the teachers who've already purchased the book and a lot of the people who follow me on socials and things like that, are they, they are representative of the teaching population. A lot of them are white women. And my message to them is even you can have an impact on the lives of these students using these strategies that are present here in the book. Yeah. And, and thank you for writing the book. And I don't want to suggest that just because somebody is white, that they're incapable of teaching, you know, black students. Sure. I had a lot of white teachers in my education and I'm not suggesting that, you know, white teachers are inherently racist or incapable yeah, yeah, yeah. of seeing our kids for their potential. But it would be naive of us to think that, you know, they live in this world where they are bombarded with these negative messages and that they would be able to all walk into a school setting and, you know, separate that, leave that at the door, uh, particularly if you're in the South, particularly if you're in some of these states where you have lawmakers, uh, in many cases, you know, banning books and saying things like, we don't want to teach Black history, or we don't want to make, and I, 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 you know, I'd be curious to see if you've had this in your school, you know, a lot of these laws uh, that are preventing the teaching of black history the justification is is because it makes the white kids feel uncomfortable so have you had that experience where you know you've had to teach a lesson or, or do something in the classroom uh and and be less than truthful about the facts because of concern that it was going to make uh you know a, a white kid feel uncomfortable yeah, luckily, I've never been faced with that um, that type of decision. I haven't. Uh, we are, I'm able to um, speak the facts, and as long as it's grounded in truth, <laughs> you know, we can go ahead and, and teach it. So I haven't been faced with that. It's just funny because I have a, a cousin who's getting married to a, a white, he's an African-American, he's marrying a white, uh, his fiance's white, she's in Missouri, and she stopped teaching because she got so, she said, just overwhelmed, frustrated with the white parents uh, during the Trump era, who had become so outspoken, or still the Trump era, but in this era, uh, were demanding that she not teach certain lessons. The kids were going home and telling their parents, like, you know, if she used a certain word, uh, she was very empathetic, you know, to the Black students and was trying to 
do her best to stay within the confines. I think Missouri must have some of those, you know, really restrictive laws about what the teachers can teach in the classroom. And she said it got to be just so stressful because she felt like she could not do all of her kids, the kind of service, you know, provide the kind of uh, experience that they deserve. She felt like she was on eggshells trying to not please the little white kids as much as please their parents because she knew that if she kind of stepped out of quote unquote line, there would be some white kid that would go home and tell her parents. And she spent a lot of his or her parent. She spent a lot of time. She said, literally trying to justify what she was doing in the classroom. And I would imagine that again, in certain states, that is becoming a reality for a lot of teachers is that you know, they, they can't say gay, you know, in a state like Florida, you know, you can't talk about kids who may have two mothers or two fathers or, you know, kids themselves that may be struggling with their own identity. We know kids particularly, you know, are coming out about their sexual identities a lot earlier now than perhaps they did 10, 15 years ago. Uh, how is your school even dealing with that issue? The, the issue that, you know, kids might come to school at eight years old and say they believe they're a girl, not a boy, or they want to be identified by pronouns uh, and not by the gender that they were born. Prevalent. I would say in all schools across America, definitely in my school as well, we see it, you know, all over the place, which is why we talk about the fact that teaching is, is so stressful. <laughs> it's so overwhelming because you feel pressure from so many different angles. As you, you may think it's, there's an expectation and now you have to, you know, just communicate to the students. But you're feeling the pressure from district. You're feeling the pressure from parents. You're feeling pressure, as you mentioned, from students that are going to go home and tell their parents. It's a lot. It's 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 so much. And that is a, that's one of the reasons and one of the goals in the book is to help us focus on the things that we can't control. Because the things that are out of our control are going to continuously overwhelm us. And they're going to, there's, every day, there's going to be something else that is out of our control that's holding us down. But my thought process is if you really are committed to this work and you feel like you're called to make an impact through education, I'm going to help you focus on how to focus on the things that you can control and still make the difference that you were called to make. Well, let's go back, let's go back to the eight-year-old. So the eight-year-old yeah. is suspended. That just doesn't sit well with me. I'm sure it doesn't sit well <laughs> with a lot of folks, maybe even you. But but so what, what does a school do? Like, does that cause a school to reflect on its policies, to, to reevaluate whether we should be suspending an eight-year-old because they tossed the book on a desk? It definitely does cause you to, to reflect on the policies. But I think what it does for me more so, especially in this position of administration, is to focus more on the conversation with the teacher. Because teachers understand the policies as well and sometimes can weaponize it. So if you know that the student, the only reason why he was suspended was because it was literally, if you it literally repeated small offenses. So it's his sixth small offense. It wasn't anything egregious. It wasn't a fight or anything like that, but because of the sixth small offense, a small offense, you choose whether or not to report a small offense. Did that seem like something you could have reported or was that something you could have handled on your own? So the way that I see it is just dealing more with the um, the teachers in that situation and trying to not, again, weaponize the system against the students, but to find other different um, solutions. But why would there be a policy to begin with that says if you have six little minor offenses, it adds up to a suspension? Because suspension, in my mind, seems like such a punitive, uh, you know, consequence. I think it's punitive when there are not restorative practices along the way as well. I do believe, again, you know, coming with the pressure from so many different angles, at some point, the teacher also should be respected and the teacher also has to be protected as well. So if I have a student that's continuously disrupting, continuously doing the things that they're not supposed to do, 
at some point, at some point, the suspension is a break between that student and the teacher. <laughs> Go home for a day, think about your and come on back. So uh, that's why it's tiered in that way, which which I understand the tiering behind it. No, that, that's a good point. Obviously, you know, kids have to be taught consequences and they have to be taught those consequences early. But again, too often than not, it's the black students that, you know, face the most dire consequences, the most regularly uh, in school settings. A lot of work to be done. So grateful uh, to you, Daryl. Thank you for sharing this hour with me. Congratulations again on your book. It's 99% human, 1% amazing. You know, keep doing what you're doing. Keep, uh, you know, spreading the word about the need to have more Black male teachers in our classrooms. Uh, I really, uh, you know, applaud you for this work. So needed. Next voice that you hear will be Robin Ayers and the Raw Report right here on KBLA Talk 15.